And of course, as soon as I hit start recording, clump, clump, clump. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the nerd. I'm Ian. Uh, happy Monday. How's your week starting out? Did uh, I hope you got up to something fun this weekend? I hope you did what I didn't do and actually got outside. I mean, maybe it's overrated. I don't know. I wouldn't know. I'm here. I'm, I'm doing things. You know, the, uh, sorry, I moved the microphone, cardinal sin. The, uh, the last time I had a skin cancer removed, the doctor was like, yeah, you really shouldn't go outside. And I was like, well, isn't vitamin D like an important kind of thing? Apparently they make clothes with, uh, UV protect protection in them. Uh, and my entire wardrobe is supposed to be made out of that stuff. What a weird way to start. Anyway, I just want to tell you, you look good. It's good to see you. Um, today on the podcast, as I mentioned last week, I'm trying a slightly different approach than I have been doing. So, you know, if things feel a little different. That may be why. Um, definitely the, the podcast is a work in progress, uh, which is interesting because it's also about work. In progress. A um, little less scripted, but I'm getting this one out to you. It is Monday, is it not? And there was a, there was a podcast uh, six days ago. So we did it. I would yell, but it would peak the microphone and probably be bad for your ears. So we'll just go, yay, we did it, high five. Anyway, to that end, uh, today I'm going to do a resolutions update. Um... I'm probably going to title this one A Tale of Balls Dropped, which uh, is not intended to be a euphemism or have other connotations. Um, new band name. After that, I had a conversation with my friend Lonnie of Chipperish Media to enter into the next phase of the writing process with one of my resolutions this year, write a novel. Then I'm going to come back to you and um, share with you today's writing, rough and messy and direly in need of editing though it may be. Um, you know, part of all of this, uh, the benefit for me in the podcast has always been um, to re the signpost and to regularly regularly bring myself to back to thinking about process and thinking about just getting things done, just doing the next thing. And... Um, you know, I, I thought maybe by sharing a just a rough free write that it might be encouragement to other people to do the same. Um, yeah, and then finally we'll wrap up with chapter 21 of our fanfic reading, Here is Gone by Terry Boda. I still owe you guys a um, compilation for chapters 10 or 11 through 20. It might be 11 through 21 now. All right, um... So, returning to the New Year's resolutions. So, um, for any of you who haven't listened before, uh, one of the ways I started the year was by saying I love New Year's resolutions. I love the idea of stopping and taking stock of where you're at with goals. I love the idea, like, one of the things I've said is the, the um, you know, the percentage chance of something be, being successful has nothing to do with whether or not it's worth trying. And um, part of this year uh, is 
you know, kind of continually going back and starting over and trying again and all of that. And um, I think uh, I shared my conversation with Ryan with you two podcasts ago where we were going to work on some iambic pentameter for the month and um, uh, take a photograph a day, and neither of us have gotten started on that. And that's okay. I mean, um, you know, there, uh, what, uh, there's this weird compulsion to um, accrue evidence one way or another. I mean, definitely I'm uh, a creature of comfort. I'm definitely someone who, you know, seeks inertia and peace and relaxation. I wouldn't say apathy, but... Um, uh, all of that. There's, uh, but it, but it's easy for me to sort of fall in, and then the the you know that's when the the uh, the darkness starts to creep in. Whenever I manage to get there successfully, so um, things are gonna drop. But the 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 toxic compulsion to say, well, I guess it dropped, and I'll start over again tomorrow or in a month or whatever it may be, is part of the thing to overcome. So, you know, um, these New Year's resolutions, I probably have not touched in a month. And we're in the middle of a quarantine slash pandemic slash lot of crazy things, uh, a lot of good things. But um, it's a lot. And there uh, comes decision fatigue and news fatigue and social media fatigue. And me personally, I just don't want to do anything. But I know that that way lies uh, a bit of madness as well. So here we are, it's Monday, and um, these are um, the things that I'm sharing with you, my accountability buddies, to pick back up again. So um, let's run through them together. So the goal here is to, or the idea here is to sort of um, talk about where we started at the beginning of the year, where we're at now, and set a goal um, upcoming. So spiritual, the original goal was morning meditation. That changed to journaling with uh, some meditation. And, and I, now I've been doing this thing, uh, blindfolded journaling for 25 minutes in the morning. It looks like this. Uh, I, and I actually highly uh, recommend it. If, um, you know, you identify with any of the stuff I've said and the way my mind works and, and all of that, maybe there'd be a benefit in this for you. But um, I and I had a friend try it this weekend who was justifiably cynical uh, about being a person alone in the room who puts on headphones playing a rainstorm to type into a page to no one. It's it, it on the surface of it, it looks crazy. But she did it and was very surprised at what came up. And I believe the key is to just not resist any of the thoughts. That occur if you feel weird and silly type this is weird and silly down and wait for the next thought and if you want to explore uh, a particular thought explore a particular thought explore how you're feeling um that's the first thing the other big key is if there's nothing to say or to type um or to think then you're you're kind of at the destination and i tend to just sit there and listen to the storm for 25 minutes um the white noise playing in the headphones i never end uh the exercise early and it just has been working for me i don't know why 
but when the ADD is on overdrive and I'm uh, control T Twitter, control T uh, Reddit, control T Facebook, YouTube, if I steer myself into a journaling session uh, and do it in this particular way, since uh, I can touch type, I mean, even the words on screen are a distraction. I usually in the first five minutes feel tension just kind of rolling off my shoulders and just kind of being present and, you know, that's a great jumping off point for the rest of the day, such that it's now become the thing I, I do every morning. Um, and I think I've discovered in that process what I was looking for with meditation, which is just kind of like, meditation is is awesome weightlifting to understand a particular muscle, which is the idea of letting things go, letting a thought go. But what I found through the journaling process is that there's like this sublevel layer of thought that maybe has not uh, found cohesion into a complete sentence yet, but it's bothering me. Like the um, seeing my grandpa last week and all of the the stuff that that stirred up just occurred in a half second moment of um, standing in his kitchen, you know. And so it's hard to let go of a particular thought or to know if there's something to do with it. If you don't spend a little time being present and sort of sweeping the floor of your own brain from time to time, that's what it feels like to me is maintenance is, um, you know, cleaning off the desk before getting to work. I guess. Um, I don't know. It's been very helpful. Uh, but So my goal is to, to do that every morning uh, over coffee. I'm not sure at my current success rate. Anytime I've gotten anything done in the past couple of weeks, I the day started by me doing a 25-minute journaling session and then going into whatever the thing may be, uh, including today. So um, between now and Monday, regardless of my goals for the day... Or if it's a day off, I'm still going to do that 25-minute journaling session. Relationships. <clears throat> I think I started the year with the goal of 10 communications on OkCupid sent uh, by Monday. Sent by me. And a reply to anyone who writes me. I mean, there's... there's, there's there is a quarantine on. I'm not just going to presume. That's uh, that's why that's not... Uh, no, that's not why that's not. Okay, yes. Obviously, this goal exists because hugs are nice. Uh, we could all use more hugs. Kissing's pretty cool. And committing yourself uh, to someone else is a daily invitation to get out of your head and support someone you care about. And have someone support you when you're struggling. But I will say that during this quarantine, uh, weirdly, I'm spending more time during the week with friends, yes, the digital versions of them, than I was before the quarantine happened. Um, you know, the movie nights and game nights and cubicle buddy sessions, I explained what that was before. Um, you know, and under the banner of relationships, I feel like those relationships count, so... Notice how I'm distracted from that category without setting a goal for next week? Mm. Financial. Uh, goal was eyeball the budget on the daily. Um, track everything once a week on a Wednesday. That one's coming along. Um, I, I, I freely admit, 
once DoorDash started delivering food again, I kind of slipped a bit with the budget. But the goal of tracking the numbers is staying in focus. Professional. One episode every two weeks. Heh. Uh, keep the podcast weekly. Double. Heh. And uh, grow Patreon. <clears throat> um... I'm unsure of the moment at ways to chip away at these, but obviously I'm not ever stopping trying. Uh, taking two days off a week has been very helpful for me, uh, you know, mentally and emotionally. There um, have not been results, concrete results, specific measurable results from that that exist yet in the uh, productivity output. But it hasn't gotten worse, and so if that means that I'm able to take that time and, um, you know, do the work, do the writing with more enthusiasm and and uh, um, without losing more days, then um, I still count that as a win. Uh, and I, I will tell you, on the weekends, boy, have I been sleeping. Sleep has been evasive for a year and a half since I quit my job, September twenty. 08, or September 2018 was um, I one big insomnia fest. Uh, what have I just done to my life? And that has sort of continued because I never gave myself time to just not be thinking about the channel and the goals and what the next thing is and so forth. Um, and I know the weekend thing is working because I, I'm able to sleep. And... Uh, um, Boy, is it important. So, yeah, that, that was the, I think that was the last uh, attempted kind of change to chip away. I have an idea for something today, which I'm going to try this week, and um, we'll see if it's successful. Uh, goal is, guys, will be guys by the end of the week. Um, we This podcast is six days from the last one, so, hey, it's the beginning of a chain. That's all we're looking for. And... Um, That's really all I have on that one uh, right now. Day by day, the goal is read and acknowledged. Uh, that's what kind of where we're at. Personal. These are the uh, personal resolutions. I'm going to write a novel. You'll hear more about that one in the next section and after. There was a van on this list for some reason. This is how uh, uh, much the sands can shift. Uh, that seems insane to me now. But I remember starting out the year very attached to the idea of that ProMaster. Maybe it would be nice. I, um, number three, um, dry January and February uh, in aid of health and wellness. I That has now changed too. I have quit drinking. This is month three of sobriety. And uh, I think when I set out and when I finally talked to you guys about it, I told you that I knew that the first couple of months for me would be easy, the nature of my problem being what it is. Month three is where things would start to get challenging, and they have. Um, it's funny, I uh, yesterday or the day before, I was sitting at the dinner table and just smelled a glass of wine and definitely felt a, a craving for it. Um, and... Uh, uh, Urge for ice cream has gone way up, which uh, is probably compensating for the sugar or lack of the same volume of calories that uh, was in the alcohol I was drinking. You know, there isn't really much to say about it. I'm just kind of taking 
uh, one day at a time. Hung out with a bunch of friends uh, who were celebrating our birthday this weekend, and everyone was uh, throwing them back. And, you know, I just kind of went to my happy place and um, interacted and and didn't really think about it, actually. the uh, For me, the... Uh, uh, the challenges come in other forms. Um, you know, the analysis machine not shutting off, uh, going into overdrive. Um, I've had a couple of friends tell me recently how overthinking I have been. And um, and I just burned my brain out uh, last week, which I think I talked about. Um, and that, I don't remember that happening when I was imbibing on the regular... Um, you know, there's something about the the swampy mental downtime that uh, alcohol might have been giving me, where I just turned off uh, the higher functions for a while and chilled out and relaxed and, you know, was present and felt a little joy and yada yada. Uh, that is not there now. And so, uh, for me, there's... Um, once, you know, if you're a self-medicator, uh, in the form, uh, that I have been for a while, once, um, you decide to, you know, stop, stop the medication, you're faced with addressing the issues that were causing you to, to do that in the first place. One of mine is constant brain churn. Um, so the journaling's a part of that, uh, taking weekends to actually sleep is a part of that and, um, need to pick up the exercise. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, my favorite Ted talk is still the first one that was posted on YouTube. And he said that he said something that very much encapsulated me. He said, um, professors are people that are used to treating their bodies as transports for their heads. And that's a very good way of, uh, encapsulating my twenties and thirties. You know, and I just know from uh, the weight loss and success earlier this year that we are biological. We're uh, we're made of meat, and um, if you treat that meat well, um, it has positive results for your heart and mind, your emotions, um, all of that. So I need to get back on that train. But the weight loss or the uh, not drinking is fine either. Uh, there's not really been any um, close calls or anything like that. It's just been, it has just become a grind uh, this month. Um, but I think that addressing some of those other things and and kind of keeping the uh, keeping the focus on the day by day and uh, just finding ways to sort of find some peace and and uh, uh, burn up some of the uh, anxiety and all of that will will be enough for now uh is my guess the way i feel about the way this is feeling you know i don't have a lot of experience with um the way this works for other people um, i'm not saying that uh you know my particular strain of alcoholism is unique far from it i'm sure i'm just saying that um you know, this is all kind of trial and error for me, uh, figuring this out as, as we go along. So, so far, so good. There's something about joy that I was, 
that I was trying to touch on last week, the way I felt uh, about, you know, I have a tendency to um, to grind, uh, and I think that there are, it, it, it's not the most efficient space to get to for certain things. Um, maybe I shouldn't reach for that thought until I have it refined a little bit better. Um, so number four in the personal goals was weight loss and fitness challenge that completed. I lost about 35 pounds since the start of the year. I will tell you the truth because you are my accountability buddy. The last time I weighed myself, uh, was after our fitness challenge ended and I noticed the weight was going up and I got that like, uh, kind of feeling and haven't weighed myself since it has been a month. Yeah. And I've been eating ice cream and not exercising. <sighs> Feels good to say that out loud. Okay. So let's set a goal. Weight loss and fitness challenge. So um, I've set a goal. I'm going to run, to do some run, walk and run challenges uh, three days this week. Intermittent fasting. And I starting tomorrow, I'm going to get back to weighing myself first thing in the morning. It's so funny. It's like it, it's just like a bank account, you know. If you're bad with um, your budget, the way I have been bad with my budget, what is that impulse like? Um, you know, you buy the thing at two in the morning because you can't sleep and you're shopping, and that gives you a little bit of like feel good, like oh, uh, a new shiny is coming in the mail, and then you go to sleep, and then you wake up and you're like, what the hell did I just do? I don't know if I can afford. I can't afford a new tablet or whatever it may be. In my case, it's a uh, sometimes a box of Keurig pods. Um, and so you just don't look. Just don't look at it. You just don't budget. You don't just don't figure it out. It's that weird impulse, I guess. When when I was a kid and afraid of the dark, if I hide under the blanket and close my eyes, the monsters will go away. Except your budget doesn't go away, and the the uh, weight around my waistline. I've got a savings account going there that's getting bigger. Is all I'm saying. So. Time to have the information. Better to have the information than to not fall. And lastly, number five, uh, finish five story-driven games and ten books. My reading habit is totally stalled out. Um, nothing to do there but get back to a daily time investment. Uh, I read for the channel. I read essays. I read nonfiction for the channel. But the goal there was uh, ten pieces of fiction um, by the end of the year. And I have been struggling. Um, just the lack of the habit, I suppose. But, uh, you know, cranking on Justified and Gilmore Girls. I think if I, can, I find for that time for that, I can find time for um, 30 minutes to an hour a day. But, uh, yeah, 10 is looking steep right now. I may have to uh, schedule some read-in days. Do you remember read-ins? Did you have a read-in? I loved read-ins. Um, read-ins were this thing in elementary school we did. They were some of my favorite days. Um, you bring some bedding and your favorite snacks to school, along with two or three books, and spend all day lying under your desk with the other students reading. Maybe I can coerce some friends into doing a read-in day with me um, and just crank through something. might be fun. But yeah, like 
reading the celery stalks at midnight and Doctor Who books under my desk when I was in elementary school and Star Trek books. I read a lot of extended universe things. There were a couple of good Star Trek books. One of uh, 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 Peter David wrote a book that called Probe, which was an explanation of where the probe was from Star Trek Four. That was a lot of fun. There were a couple of good Q books. There was a Borg book. I'm nerding out now. Um, five story-driven games are done. Once I made the decision to not game stream, uh, I must have been chomping at the bit, and I just tore through the rest. Since the start of this year, I have finished The Last of Us and its DLC, uh, Life is Strange 2, Batman Arkham Origins, Assassin's Creed Unity, Homeworld Deserts of Karak, and Mirror's Edge Catalyst last Wednesday. Um, I started The Last of Us Part 2 on Friday. Uh, those guys, there's so much to say about those two games. Um, there, was in the, there was a moment in the game where a character was going through a house and finds a photograph. And I just broke in half, weeping over my controller. Um, you know, it, it's 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 the experience um, from media and stories that is the reason why the channel exists. To kind of see and understand your own life through a piece of media, and that moment unlocked something for me. Funny enough, uh, last weekend I also hopped on Zoom with Lonnie as she finished Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice and had a very similar experience with that one. Um, Roger Ebert was definitely something of an idol of mine, but those three games definitely disprove his um, infamous statement about games can't be art. Um, yeah, Senua has a model for... Um, grief and abuse and and all of that across its lore that is just staggering um we had a wonderful conversation about that speaking of Lonnie, um she has been my coach in the writing process we had planned to meet and move into the next stage of writing a novel in may i believe it was and here we are nearing the end of june oh well it happens um and what's important is to keep the work moving, not to punish. So in this next bit, I talk with her about my successes and failures with the first part of the writing process she laid out in our last conversation. I will link um, that last conversation in the notes down below. And then we talked about what's next. Then I'm going to come back, talk to you a little bit about my first attempts at drafting. And then wrap up with the fanfic reading. So here we go. Hello, everyone. So here we are with my friend. I don't know why I'm doing accents and stuff. I I just have to talk my way into things. <laughs> That's why I always have a script. I always have a written script for the beginning and the end of everything. Because otherwise, I walk into it and I'm like, I'm here. I'm doing a weird we voice. <laughs> It's always so performative. Like when you walk into a room and you're just like, ta-da, there's always that sense at the beginning of a thing. So that's why I, on my stuff, I always script, I always script ahead of time, but I didn't think about that for you. Well, so. we're not, we're, I'm not doing that and I'm keeping everything that we just did in. So. Oh, God. <laughs> Hello, Lonnie. Hi, Ian. How Hi. So uh, we are, I, first of all, I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Um, we 
chatted in February, I think, um, or March about, um, I have this idea for a booksy wooksy. God damn it, Ian. Uh, and I, uh, uh, um, uh, you have guided me through sort of like what the overall steps are, what the arc of uh, the writing process has been. And then we said we were going to meet up um, quarterly-ish. That would have been in, I believe, June, uh, or rather May. We're in June now, but that's okay. Yeah. We're in a time warp. Uh, it's fine. Time has no time, meaning. Yeah, anymore. time doesn't work the same way during the apocalypse. Um <laughs> And the first part of the steps, if you can kind of run me through, uh, uh, what was the first phase? And then I'll the sort of, I'll one. give you the breakdown of uh, what I what I accomplished, and I hope to get a gold star, <laughs> but you, you can tell me. Be, be harsh. <laughs> well, spoilers, I've been, you know, hanging out with you behind the scenes, so I kind of know how this is going to end, but it's uh, okay. We'll keep that. <laughs> I know. They don't know. <laughs> they don't All know right, the process. The first, the first <clears throat> phase of the writing process, again, is discovery. Uh, discovery is when you are, like, kind of engaging in the magical idea. You're making collages. You're making soundtracks. You're doing discovery writing, which is writing that is not necessarily intended to go in the book, but it's just kind of giving you a sense of the history or the, the setting or the characters or, you know, who they are. Um, so the discovery phase is kind of this, it's very fun and magical and full of the exciting stuff, but it's also weird and it has no metrics that you can apply to it. It doesn't really feel like working. So you feel like you're kind of just screwing around. Um, discovery, like people, different writers feel differently about every phase. Like everybody has a favorite phase of writing between discovery, which is what I just described, drafting when you're just writing the words and then revision when you go back and fix everything you messed up. Um, and, and discovery is a challenge for a lot of people because you don't feel like you're getting a lot done. But Ian, I think you got a lot done. I feel the opposite, but that's okay uh, because I trust you. Uh, the um, I was very much in that camp of, um, you know, <clears throat> part of the podcast has been sort of uh, talking about my own productivity and my own systems and the way sort of my mind works. And I discovered that in order for me to accomplish things and move the 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 yard post, I have to make up arbitrary measurements for what moving the yard post actually is. Um, the yard stick, not yard post. I know sports, and uh, the so in this case, not having uh, you know sort of a, I need to gamify things in order to have a sense of like what an accomplished day is, um, and so. I was checking in with you a lot of, wait, what was the thing? What, so now what do I do? Uh, what, what's the next next little bit? It, the, the lack of sort of really concrete structure for what the discovery writing aspect actually was was very difficult for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to uh, provide links to everything that we're talking about in the show notes if you guys want to go and take a look at the uh, soundtrack playlist that I made for uh, the book and the story. Um, there's a little bit of Angel. There's a little bit of uh, Outlander. There's a little bit of a uh, little bit of a bunch of different things in there, and along with the Pinterest board. Um, and there's no real way for me to share the um, the discovery writing, but um, the the soundtrack thing I think was probably the most. Um, 
interesting new aspect of uh, the process for me so far, and we haven't really put it to use yet in the in the drafting. But um, I, of course, because I'm sort of following a Romeo and Juliet structure, which is maybe a little bit different than if I were writing something completely from scratch. Mm-hmm. Sort of, I know the layout of the scenes and kind of generally where everything's going and where my idea skews away from the text. So I went through my uh, list of scenes and put a little S next to any scene that was significant enough to have an emotional moment that might have a soundtrack if I were editing this Mm -hmm. in Adobe Premiere. And once I started thinking about it and listening to music and um, uh, thinking about the scenes and the characters that I already feel like I know or, uh, or am connected with because of the unusual place that this comes from, um really got the the benefit of it uh the when i first started video editing i edited to music um i would edit little music videos i think it's a great way to get a sense of timing and pace and and all of that and you start to realize that i I mean i realize how much of a weapon music is in the episode guides and the other things that i edit for the channel uh you know just a little I, i i i've had subscribers tell me that they hear just the first little beats of a piano at the end of a video and they're like ah crap (laughs) you know um it's gonna make me cry again yeah Yeah. so i know (laughs) i know how important and i mean music is instant emotional access hopefully the text earns it but music is instant emotional access so i uh to me that was really cool thinking about what a power that is if you're the one writing Mm-hmm. To sort of, uh, you know, if you're distracted or had a bad day or whatever, to be able to fire up that soundtrack and know instantly the emotional yeah. core of the scene or have access to a version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, can you tell me about sort of um, soundtracks that you've used before and sort of how you rely on that that tool? Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing is, one thing I forgot to ask you about, though, and check up, check up on with you was whether you were charging it. Like every time that you sit and you think about the the story in your book, were you listening to the soundtrack? Uh, I was when I when I was going through different scenes, or um, for me, it's specific, just sort of broadly listening. You told me to avoid using tracks that I was too familiar with familiar uh, from with. other mm-hmm. stuff. I, I I didn't listen to you completely. That's there, okay. That's that, okay. Like I said, it's there's some one, angel. It's one little trick, but you can break that association if yeah. you need to. You just have to do more work to do that. Yeah. Like I said, there's some uh, uh, there's some angel on here. Cordy meets mm-hmm. Fred. Um, there's a track from Arrival. There's a very bizarre scene in in my story that's a departure from the realism of the story. And there's mm-hmm. so when they see the UFOs in Arrival, I'm so struck yeah. by how bizarre the the sound is that he created that I, I thought it would make uh, a great um, yeah. uh, touchstone for mine. But I, honestly, the um, I haven't spent as much time thinking about the book over the, and maybe this is just a product of the times that we're in right now. Um, I haven't spent as much time thinking about the book as I would normally. What else are you thinking about, Ian? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, with, let alone all the other things. So, um, uh, yeah, so I haven't yet. And, of course, us having this conversation was, for me, sort of the, the point of moving into drafting where I might use yes. it a little bit more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So the um, the next thing that I went to we uh, was the collage. Um, and can can you kind of give me the rules or the idea? What what was your, what was your guiding uh, um, uh, information for that? Well, the idea of the collage is that you are building up sort of a visual sense of the story. Um, now, for me, because I'm not a visual thinker, that's always a huge challenge for me. I resist, I resist, I resist. I don't want to, right, when it comes to collaging. And then it always ends up being incredibly helpful for me. Uh, other people may have a different experience. If they're more visually, if they're more naturally visual, it may not be such a resistance or such a help for them. Um, but it's basically you just take, um, like, placeholder actors or people, pictures that um, that give you the feel of like your story like a picture of an actor in which they are evoking the character that you've got for them right um so you, and and some people will have like five or six different actors for and make an amalgam of that for like one character i tend to be one actor per character i need that focus you know um but uh, so you pull those together pages for your characters um your setting um, a visual representation of like the mood and the tone sometimes, um, especially during the, the drafting process when you're just you're just running through this thing, like your tone can shift around a little bit. So having like music and visuals that sort of anchor you in the tone that you want can be helpful. Um, so there are a lot of things with that. Now, now one of the, the easiest and simplest ways is just build a Pinterest board and it is completely effective. You go like from that extreme all the way to, to building a step temple out of foam core, you know, which uh, which has also happened to a project <laughs> that I was a part of, uh, thanks to the the wonderful Jennifer Cruzy. I didn't do it; she built it. Um, but uh, but anywhere in there, like you know, making a scrapbook, uh, sticking a bunch of pictures on a corkboard on the wall. Yeah. I've had a shelf where I've I, I had a shelf for one where I went out and I went to the dollar store and I just bought items that were reminiscent of like my character and their setting and where they were. I put those physically on the shelf. Um, there's all manner of ways that you can do um, that you can do that kind of collage. Uh, so that's basically the the essence of it. And there's a magic to it. I think that even I don't really understand. Yeah. There's the visual sense. There's all these things, but there's something about not even necessarily the, the having it or it being available or looking at it, but curating it. There's something in the curating of it that has a very powerful effect for me. And, and a lot of writers I've worked with have also, you know, had the same thing. So how was the collage experience for you? I, I would say it's, it's definitely the step that I put off the longest. Um, and I'm, um, I'm not a very crafty person. Uh, he says, meaning the double entendre, of course, but uh, I'm, I'm not a very uh, glue and magazines and, and and that's where I go to with the uh, the word collage. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I get cold sweats, and I think about the various cuts on my fingers that I'm going to get from the scissors. But the uh, so when you when you talked about the Pinterest board, I it was another area that I sort of. I mean, you were really there for all of the steps of like, okay, Ian, it's okay, don't panic. Just here's what we do, and you showed me a couple of Pinterest boards of yours, <clears throat> and and it was the idea of. Maybe sort of rotating it from, um, I mean, it is whatever, the way you, you described it is very open-ended. It, it is whatever way it needs to be for it to be useful to you. Yes. Right. And so for me, where it became useful was in the casting 
mm-hmm. notion of it. Yeah. Casting the story, casting the um, the and again, uh, there's a link to the Pinterest board that I created at the bottom. Um, but I the sort of reaching out for um, the personalities that some of these actors have played in different parts um, unlocked aspects of character to me in my head where I was like, oh, yeah, she is kind of snarky. That is, you know, um, uh, Beth is sort of a, a Kristen Bell from The Good Place kind of character. And and um, one of the characters, of course, for those who are, didn't listen to our original discussion, my idea for this is gender-swapped Romeo and Juliet staged in high school in modern times with a very sort of Buffy kind of feel to it and then a weird random departure uh, in the middle of it. And... Um, um, one of the characters is a, the Mercutio character. Uh, to me, was I was locked on Xander. Uh, I could not get Nicholas Brendan out of my head in all of the scenes as the the guy. And um, uh, through the casting exercise and just kind of going around and thinking about who he might be, other than that, it 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 unlocked other possibilities for that character i think which may have been limited in the writing process to a nicholas brendan type um Mm -hmm. which you know we've talked about stealing versus borrowing versus whatever and it's like i I wouldn't have been opposed to that but to have more possibilities uh uh in the writing is to me the uh the benefit of this exercise and also if i do you when you write do you have an av- do you have a proxy in your stories do you consider that that um there's a you version mean like a placeholder of placeholder actor is there a version of you in a lot of your stories oh i don't not deliberately but yeah i, I mean i think that it's always <laughs> like every character is always some part of you and i think that's honestly part of and this is you know a different discussion altogether but why villains and antagonists are so much fun to write because they kind of allow you access to the parts of you that are not very polite <laughs> and and sometimes that can be really fun and um and freeing to be able to to write someone who is not constrained by like human decency or whatever <laughs> i mean sometimes I'm not saying I don't want to be a decent human. I'm saying no, I get it. Yeah, you know, it's fun to be able to play in that space where you're not actually harming anybody. You know, um, so I think that even in, even in the dark characters, even in the characters that are not like us, that we there is always a part of us there if we're if we're really in it, if we're really writing. Like you know what I'm saying? Like there yeah. there are some times where um where you go in and you just dash something off and you're not really present for it you know um but if you're really present in the writing if you're if you're in the thing i I don't think that there's any part of it that isn't at least a little bit you absolutely i mean i was thinking more in the and and uh uh it's impossible to say his name now in any sort of normal conversation but woody allen is infamous for uh writing himself uh, writing a character version of himself I, i can't remember what the name of that Oh, so you're talking about like a direct, but a direct, yeah, yeah, a the, direct. This is me, and the yeah. <laughs> I don't. Have know. you not done I that? I don't think so. I generally like to. I I live with me like every yeah. day, 
So generally I try not to do that, but I do think that that does happen though a lot. Like uh, one of the, the big examples of this is uh, Bella from the Twilight novels, right? Um, oh, Stephanie that, Meyer, yeah. Stephanie Meyer, that, there, that Bella is such a, like a cipher. I mean, she's basically nothing. She has one personality trait and it's that she falls down on occasion. Like um, there's nothing about her that if, that would prevent a like the writer or the reader seeing themselves in that you know in that character like you can just sort of it's sort of like um self-insertion you know yeah. and, and whether whether stephanie meyer i don't know stephanie meyer whether she wrote that with that intention of making it super easy for anybody reading it to feel like they are bella because bella is nothing there's nothing in Bella that's contradictory with anybody because she has no personality. Okay, people who love Twilight, calm down. <laughs> I only read it once and it was 10, 15 years ago. I don't even know whenever it came out. Um, so I'm just saying like, you know, there's, there's, there were things in there that I, I think Stephanie Meyer actually has more writing chops than necessarily she gets credit for. But when it comes to the characterization of this one character, I think I'm going to stand by that. Um, so, I mean, so in that circumstance, that might have been like a self-insertion fantasy for Stephanie Meyer. I can kind of see that kind of character. Um, for me, I think that my personal psychology is a little uh, more elusive, maybe a little less honest, you know, with itself. Yeah. Like, no, it's not me. I'm not like that. I mean, <laughs> So the long answer to that, the short answer after this really long, stupid answer in which I threw Stephanie Meyer under the bus is, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm there's sure. a, well, there's a, um, for me, there's a very, uh, so I came up with the idea for this story, The uh, again, repeating myself a little bit here for anyone who didn't listen to the original discussion. I came up with the idea for this story about six years ago, about the same time that I wrote Why You Should Watch Buffy and... I was throwing things against the wall to see what stuck. I think it's a good exercise for anyone who is um, searching for something. Uh, but I was also sort of dealing with it, not sort of, I was dealing with a breakup and, and some of the fallout from that. So there is a character in the story who is just kind of a direct version. Uh, he's a side character in the story that's kind of a direct version of that person that I was at that time. So I was going to say, bringing it back to the um, the Pinterest board, uh, one of the, uh, I mean, one of the more fun, entertaining aspects of it for me was casting that character, and uh, I settled on Hugh Dancy, who is, uh, we'll say, a little dreamy, uh, a very beautiful man, <laughs> and the uh, the ego exercise. Of casting the version of me as as just this dreamy. Uh, 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 I, I know him from Hannibal the most, but he's an English uh -huh. actor who is. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of fun. That's all I'm. That's all I'm gonna say. It was. Uh, there was a little bit of like, well, of course he would look that beautiful and uh, <laughs> troubled. Okay, um... I reject the premise underlying <laughs> all of this with you. I just want you to. I will allow it, but I want it officially in the record. I reject the premise. I, I mean, I sort of stumbled into it by accident, but then uh, seeing Hugh Dancy's face and picturing him as that character, the uh, the the ego boost was real. Hey, <laughs> uh, it's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, life is like full of, yeah. what is it? The night is dark and full of terrors. That's like, it's kind of what life is right now. Yeah. You know what? A moment in which you feel good. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Reject myself... the premise. But yeah, no, I think it's Making great. Making myself Hugh Dancy. 
Who cares? <laughs> Uh, so anyway, again, uh, for anyone listening who's interested, I'll include the uh, the board, the uh, the Pinterest board at the bottom. And I'm not sure exactly. You know, the 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 novel itself is not what this podcast is about. This is more one of the New Year's resolutions that I came up with for mm-hmm. this year that has sort of been driving our conversation the entire year. Um, so I'm not sure how much uh, you guys listening are interested in me telling you about the process of uh, discussing it but the uh, <clears throat> uh or as i go rather than in our our check-ins as we do mm-hmm. um but so that uh, the other thing that i did was i cast the um there's a supernatural character uh in the story the the sort of warlock that created this situation that drives the mm-hmm. the narrative um, and then the, and it, it was interesting to look at, um, artistic renderings and creations for him rather than doing kind of a casting a specific actor or character that I think, um, opened something up about that. And then, um, just casting the scenes, but I mean, it's a school in a mall. Uh, uh, do we still, do they still have malls? Was that an artifact of when we were kids? <laughs> they don't have many more, man. <laughs> all gone now um yeah what what do what do the kids do lonnie help me out i'm a little lost (laughs) i don't know what the middle-aged ladies do they get drunk and watch and watch you dancey that's oh that's coincidentally that's what the middle-aged men do (laughs) um well, well i'll figure that part out yeah. Okay. No malls. No food courts. Oh. Yeah. I, well, no, in your world, there can be. Yeah. Yeah. All you right. got you got warlocks, dude. It's if you mine. want a mall, you can create a mall. That, oh, that's true. I'm I'm like debating the merits of uh, the realism of having a food court in a story with psychics. Yes. <sighs> yes. All right. Every now and again, you have to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Like you can. It's your world. You can do whatever you want. Well, and the, so the last part of the exercise was um, just whatever free you said was whatever free writing you need. Mm-hmm. And can you kind of yeah. uh, go into that a little bit? Um, yeah, discovery writing is um, a lot of times we as writers end up doing discovery writing that we put in the book that doesn't need to be there. That's where I would say like some 90 percent of your prologues come from. And anybody who's familiar with me knows about me and prologues. And you can find me talking about that everywhere. I'm not going to go into it now. But um, but that's the kind of like the backstory, the history, the things that happened when they were 10, you know, the uh, discovery writing can come in the form of letters that your characters write to each other, you know, um, they can, it can come in the form of uh, taking a personality test as your character and getting a sense for who they are that way. Uh, all of these things are discovery writing, uh, dis- dis- figuring out what their standard order is at the, the local coffee house. Like, Things like that, these things that may never actually end up in the book, but that sort of fill out the world and the characters for you in a way that you sort of need to draw on, even if you never use that coffee order specifically in your book, knowing it is going to influence your understanding of the character. And so those things, writing those things, that's all discovery. It's all discovery writing. Well, so where I sort of landed on that, and again, this is kind of an unusual uh project because um 
I had already written a hundred or so pages of this uh, a few years ago. So um, I've decided not to use any of that. But in my mind, that sort of made all of that discovery or exploration writing. And I do remember uh, in that process struggling a bit with Ani, who's my uh, the main character of the story, and um, switching and just doing a, an interview with her, uh, an inter- interview between the writer and the character. And, and I remember doing that because as I was writing, I was struggling with how she would behave in this scene. She was just a little too general. I didn't understand what her motivations were or... Um, what her uh, emotional center was in particular scenes and switching and doing the interview with her and almost asking her directly what that was brought that out. But I remember that I did that as a necessity uh, that I discovered during the the drafting process. Um, and I just kind of feel like because there's there's such a specific idea in mind here already that that'll be for me where that most emerges is um, necessity during the drafting process uh, was where where I ended up. So, but I, um, yeah, I'm going to redo everything from scratch, but I I do have all of that sort of reference material and there was stuff um, in that process that I was going back and reading as we were doing this and thinking, oh, this is... I kind of like that, which is... Yeah, you can pull in bits and pieces, too, as you go, you know, uh, from stuff that you wrote before. I mean, I've done that before, where I've, like, thrown out a whole bunch of stuff, but then there's, like, one thing where I'm like, no, I'm going to need that. Yeah. So you just go in like a magpie, and you pick out the shiny bits. Yeah. So then the... um, So I think we did it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Part one. Stamp uh, complete. Next up, we have um, the drafting process. Um which is just all the right you've, you've described as just all the writing. It's just the writing. But as somebody who, like, as you talked about at the beginning of this, that, that having that metric, you know, having a goal to hit, I think is, is a really like motivating thing for you. I think you might really enjoy the drafting process. I hate it. It's my least favorite part. <laughs> it has been uh, all I've been thinking about for the past couple of months while we've been mm-hmm. doing this is really, I can't just start. I want to start. I want to, I want to start. I want to. I want to write. You know, um, for me, knowing all the signposts of the different scenes, and um, we've talked about how, in my head, there's a natural sequel built mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. uh, there's a conflict in the story that gets revealed uh, later on. Um, I guess that'll be the tempest. The. Uh, uh, I love. It. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, uh, yeah, I've been, I mean, I, 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 this is just so structured, um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that I've just been anxious to, to dig in and, and, uh, get going and, and do it. So drafting is everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking about brain dump. Can you t- give me some of the tips, uh, that we talked about the last time tips during the drafting process? Yes, uh, the drafting process, I think, is best approached as just like a hard run right through the center of it, right? You're just, you're going to sit down every day and you're going to have a goal every day. And what that goal is, is going to change for different writers, but you want it to be what you can comfortably do plus maybe about 15%, right? So let's say if you're a writer who's comfortable doing 600 words, then you would go ahead, I can't do the math and do like 800 or whatever. That would be your daily goal, right? Um, So for me, I'm good at 1,500. 
1500 words. So I usually shoot for about uh, 2000, I guess 25%, whatever. I can't do math. I'm not a math <laughs> person. The, the whole point being a little bit more than, than what you think you can comfortably do. Um, that pushes you outside of your comfort zone. It makes you run a little hot while you're working in this space right um and some days you'll do that and you'll be like done and it's it you keep going if you want or you can stop at that goal uh some days it's going to be like pulling teeth you're going to have to write for 15 minutes and stop for an hour and then write for 15 minutes and fit it in little pockets throughout the day um, but most of the time you're going to want to really try to hit that goal so it needs to be an achievable goal so you don't feel like you can't do it. You don't want to push yourself too hard, but just a little bit. Um, and uh, so every day you go in, you whatever that word amount is that you picked, you go for it. If you need to adjust that word amount as you go to make it a little bit more challenging or a little bit less so that you can hit that goal every day, um, then you go ahead and do that. Um, and you just write and you don't worry about it. You don't worry about if it's going to be something that you actually use. Uh, some of it is going to be discovery writing. And sometimes you're going to go back and revise, you know, afterward, like revision and discovery and drafting are not distinct phases. They do bleed into each other a little bit, but I try to keep them as separate as I can so that I can really use the power of any one phase at any given time, you know, to its, to its best um, ability. The other thing that you really need to do in order for drafting to work at this clip, you know, where you're just really writing is you have to go in with the deliberate intent to write crap. Um, and I don't know if I talked about this on the I think you did a little bit, time. but please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically what it is is this, is that you have an internal editor and your internal editor is not your friend. They like to make you think they're your friend, but they're not. Um, so you start writing and your internal editor is like, that's stupid, you know? And then you're like, well, okay, maybe I can change this thing or I can do this or I can edit that or I can change that or that's just dumb or whatever. And then you waste your time and your energy trying to please, you know, for me, that bitch, right? Um, and the thing is, is that the more terrible things you write, like, especially in the beginning, deliberately terrible, you go in and you think, how can I craft the worst sentence ever, right? And then you just do that a bunch of times. And what happens is that your internal editor is so detail-oriented and so criticism-oriented, and they need a certain amount of energy in order to attack every single thought that you're having, right? So um, so they go in and they're like, well, that's a terrible sentence. That is also a terrible sentence. Wait, that one's terrible too. Like that, And then eventually they smoke out and just glitch and die, right? And that is the moment when your writing gets so good. Hmm. It gets so good because that that critical voice inside does more to hold you back than to make you better. That critical voice has no business in drafting. Drafting is about the excitement and the fun and the, the running through a field of daisies. It's just that experience. And you cannot fully experience it or fully create something if you're if part of you is worried about how, how it's going to look or what people are going to think or what what how it's going to be bad you can fix a bad page in revision that's what revision is for but a blank page you can't do anything with and if you're worried about that internal critic you're not going to get as far you're not going to create as much you're not going to have the material and there's going to be things that you could do that you won't do because you're holding yourself back from the beginning. So um, this was the thing I'd written a ton of 
books. Like, I, well, okay, no. I had read a ton of books. I'd started a ton of books. I'd gotten about five chapters in, and then I was so revising and trying to like fix it in my head that I never got any further. And it wasn't until I did NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, every November, first to the 30th, write 50,000 words in 30 days. Look it up. It's fabulous. Um, I, I went there and they said, write crap. And I wrote crap. And that is how I finished every book since. I don't think I would have ever finished a novel if I hadn't done that. And I think that some of the best things I've written have been a result of directly going in and trying to write crap because it just opens you up creatively. Yeah. So that is, I think, the best, most powerful piece of writing advice I've ever given anybody ever. Um, and I credit NaNoWriMo with giving it to me. And Chris Beatty, who is the... Um, He's the founder of NaNoWriMo. Mm -hmm. um, he has um, he has a couple of books that he's written about the process. I highly recommend them. Um, he's fantastic. He's a good friend, and I just like he was the one who opened that entire space open for me. So I want to like as I give you this advice, credit Chris Beatty because he's the one who has made a million novels happen. Wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a there's an off chance that this whole thing gets written with me wearing a blindfold. So yes. I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that editing as I go will be possible, let alone. That's awesome. uh, but I, yeah, I, I understand the idea of you write a scene a particular way and then five scenes later and realize that that scene needed to go a different way in order to, uh, to get the results that you're looking for here. So, mm -hmm. so that's kind of need to go back and revise. And the other thing I wanted to touch on um, again was uh, um, I have talked about for me, there was a very powerful. Um, it, it was a very powerful thing to to start to learn to understand the difference between when I was seeking a critique mm -hmm. versus when I was seeking validation. And I think yes. that uh, anytime you pick up a new instrument, um, uh, you know, when I first started making videos for the channel, I would send the videos to friends and. You know, uh, it you, you start doing community theater. You invite your family to for the friends to the the community theater, and and um, I think that's a natural impulse. It's a healthy impulse. I mean, it's one thing that we look for in friends and family is support for um, creative endeavors. But there are certain members of my family that are not good at providing validation. They only provide critiques, and I didn't realize that uh, what I was seeking was a pat on the back, not a, well, this scene could be better, and why don't you fix the editing here and the audio here and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, this project uh, may not be a complete departure from the channel. You know, one's a tuba and this is a trumpet, but I still know how to read sheet music, you know, so there's some relationship between the two of them. But I, um, I definitely could see... Uh, a day of writing a particular scene and be like, hey, that wasn't so bad. I want to share that with someone. Can you kind of talk about, um, you touched on this before again, but I feel like a refresher. Um, uh, yeah. Your suggestions for that impulse uh, of, yes. Uh, yes. is this good? Somebody to pat me on the back? Uh, you know, kind yes. of, yeah, go ahead. Yes. It's fabulous. 100% support that. Um, it's this idea called What's Your Favorite Part, which uh, my daughter, Sarah, when she was 12, would give me and, um, and Aunt Jen, you know, her, her writing. And then Aunt Jen and I, who were brutal, brutal, we wrote a book together and that either one of us survived. The third party in writing that book 
just watched us the sh the blood shed and we could not believe it we were totally we loved it right we're brutal um and so for us the brutality was an expression of our love and respect like if you were good we would rip you to shreds <laughs> and that would mean that we thought you were good enough you know it was it was very very that's very bad. fight anyway, club <laughs> it was it was it was it was tough. So anyway, my lovely daughter, Sarah, right? Um, we were living with Aunt Jen at the time. Um, and she comes in with this story that she wrote at 12 years old and says, hey, you know, can you read this for me and let me know what you think? And so Jen and I, with the way that we express our love, right? Our love languages, well, this is wrong and that's broken and da 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 da, right? To a 12-year-old, right? <laughs> and didn't this kid just look at me and say, no, no, I want to know what's your favorite part. And in that moment the skies opened for me and i was like yes this is why aunt jen and i can't write a book between the two of us because we're constantly critiquing it in the process like yeah. um so it is not only legitimate but absolutely recommended that when you have something of which you are proud or which was even fun to write and you're not sure if it's good to send it to somebody while you're in the drafting process, while you're in the drafting process, not only is it good to send it to somebody and say, hey, I just want to know what's your favorite part. No criticism, right? I forbid criticism during the drafting process. Sure. The same reason why you have to shut down your inner critic by throwing a whole bunch of really, really bad stuff at them to shut them down. Um, you need to shut down like other people's critical voices. It is completely legitimate for that 12 year old in us to say, I just want to know what your favorite part is, because what that does is it notifies you of what your strengths are and working with the momentum of your strengths is what gets you through the horrifying, terrible, no good drafting process, which sucks. Right. So it gives you the energy to get through it and to be like, oh, you know, this is what I'm doing. Well, let me do more of that. Let me think about that. Um, and it ends up giving you stronger material to work with that you can work with during your revision process. We we don't like to like, the, you know, we're fishing for compliments or whatever, you know, because it feels false. It feels like, well, if I'm telling somebody, you know, that they can only tell me good things and they're just going to lie to me. And the fact is, that's not what what's your favorite part is. Yeah. No matter what something is, there's going to be a favorite part. There's going to be something that when you respond to it, you'd be like, yeah, that's my best. And I do this actually in every podcast I do. I end every discussion with what's your favorite part? What out of this did you love the most? Did you enjoy the most? Did you think was the best? And because I have a tendency, as I've discussed, to being like highly like critical and self-critical to a, like a fault. Um, always keeping what's your favorite part at the center of my work, at the center of the way that I approach life um, has been so beneficial to me. And it took a 12 year old to teach me that, you know? <laughs> Um, and no, to I love day, it. Like, I, love I still am so grateful for that because I think it's one of the most beneficial things. So long story short, which I did not do. I made long story longer. Um, yes, absolutely. Only what's your favorite part during drafting. You can save how does it suck for revision. Yeah. The um, And I mean, just to sort of uh, follow up on that, I I, I believe that the um, that fishing for a compliment kind of gets a bad rap. You know, if uh, uh, if any of the people in my friendship circle uh, uh, are feeling like they need a compliment, just tell me. Uh, yeah. You're so good looking. 
<laughs> I'll be right there, man. Uh, if you need that, that's love. That's what that's for. Here's, and the, I love that shirt on you. You look real cute. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. It's so, yeah, exactly. Why on earth is that a negative thing? The, yeah. For me, the power of the distinction is even today, I mean, uh, much less so than when I started the channel because I've, I'm confident, more confident in, the, uh, uh, in what I do and what I do well. Uh, but even today, I'll send a version of the script to someone and I'll say, looking, uh, and I'll know when I send that version if I'm looking for a critique or if I'm looking for validation. And in my head, I know uh, who those those people are. But the thing is, for anyone listening, making anything is so hard. It's mm-hmm. so difficult to create stuff, to get stuff done, to write, to paint, to build a chair to do any of that. Whatever you need to do in order to get through that damn process to the point of this thing is done and I made it, it should not be penalized or you should not demonize yourself. It's just, to me, the value is um, distinguishing between that impulse so you know what you're wandering into. Because if you're looking for validation and you uh, get a harsh critique instead, it can be supremely disempowering. And you don't want to risk your fuel to for the process to anyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that speaking of someone who now has created 200 videos on the channel or whatever is, uh, you know, even today, finding the motivation and the gas to get it done is a uh, is a tough process and it needs to be treated with care but that includes not self-sabotaging yourself by um you know not reaching out and looking for support when you need it yeah so um all right well where so next up is the um drafting process we're going to go from there i'm probably going to start some of that immediately after our conversation um and then uh once that's all wrapped up the goal is about three months and uh, you and I are going to meet back up and have a conversation about how it went. And yes, you're being very generous with your time. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. Where can uh, people follow and uh, hear more of you? Yes, uh, you can find me at chipperish.com. For anybody interested in writing, I have a podcast there called House Story Works. And um, all of my knowledge is kind of packed in there too. So uh, it's basically what I teach in my college course about storytelling. Um, so you can pick all that up there and get much, much more into the nitty gritty details. Uh, you think I went long on this? You should hear me on those. <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lonnie. All right. Um, So I've had two days of drafting so far. I'm trying to do a half hour, hour a day. Um, Now, of course, bear in mind, I haven't written a piece of fiction for seven years. And um, the first day, it was not long after um, Lonnie and I recorded that bit that you just saw. I started writing the first sentence and got stuck. Uh, it was on the second word. I was like, I was looking for the perfect word. I stared at the page for a good five minutes and just kind of spiraled. And noticed the absurdity of that. And um, uh, there's a, you know, there's a, um, there's like a safe space you have to kind of get into to just chunk it out. Uh, and I say this with all the experience of two days of doing this. 
But um, at least that was the case for me that first day of. I was just looking for the right word. I was looking for, it was like I was writing an episode guide as opposed to needing to get into this, the space of the scene and the characters and the dialogue and all of that. So I put the blindfold back on. I tried the blindfold thing, tried to detach from this being good and bad and just write, and it worked. Uh, wrote the first scene, it was about 1,500 words. This morning I started the next, uh, wrote for an hour, and I could not get the blindfold thing to work. There were too many details, too many questions about who this character Tom was. I couldn't get started, so... I actually wrote myself a little quick outline. Characters in the scene, um, objective of the scene, what is the scene establishing, what does the scene move forward, what is, what is its purpose, and sort of things undecided, a space for questions to myself, things I need to be thinking about moving on. So, after all of that, um, here is the unedited, mostly, unedited uh, first draft of that scene. This is the scene uh, with Thomas Hopkins. Now again, the uh, uh, I, I make no uh, this is this is well uh, Lonnie would say I was uh, self-editing there or, or apologizing in advance. You've heard the discussion. Um, here we go. Um, my idea here is to just lay this out, uh, flubs, uh, mistakes, pretentiousness, weak bits, and hopefully some good stuff, and then tomorrow ignore this scene and move on to the next. And uh, Lonnie told me to tell you that you're only allowed to tell me your favorite part. And she's coming after anyone who doesn't, or anyone who says anything else. I'm flexible, but uh, just putting that out there. All right. Valiant effort, Derek, but uh, Sartre with it was an atheist. You're probably thinking of Kierkegaard. Point for the nihilists. That makes it Team Nihilist 2 and Team Existentialist 3. The nihilists need this next question in order to tie the game, or the existentialists win it. Tom Hopkins tapped the last blue index card against the podium dramatically and waved it back and forth at the two groups of teenagers who, despite themselves, were mostly now all bobbing up and down with anticipation. And the last question, what was the color of the tie I was wearing the first day of class? The bobbing stopped. The students turned and looked at each other in confusion. Tom had to suppress his delight, anchoring the corners of his mouth to prevent them from curling up into a smile. Dad would have loved this. One of the students leaned forward and tapped the bell on the table in front of her group. Yes, Beth, team existentialist. Uh, blue? Eh, wrong. Question goes to Team Nihilist for a chance to tie. The Nihilists mumbled to each other for a moment before one of them rang the bell. You don't have to ring the bell, Bryce. Your team is the only one speaking, but go ahead. Red? Bryce responded, scratching the top of his head. Oh, I'm sorry. The answer is key tie. I was wearing a key tie the first day of class, so there was no actual answer to the question, but black or white might have gotten you a partial point depending on the mood I was in. That isn't fair, moaned Bryce. Thank you, Bryce, for making the irony of the question self-evident. Take your seat, everyone. Ten minutes to go, so we return to pretending that grades and structure and the expectations of the culture you were randomly born into mean something. Tom walked down the aisle, 
the aisles with a pile of quizzes, depositing one in front of each student as he went. As you know, the district requires that Beacon High provide evidence that the money it gives us be good, uh, be going to a good end. And the school requires that I provide evidence that my salary is being spent in a way that gets them more money. Some of your teachers, eyes on your own quiz, Emily, some of your teachers need to justify their careers, but I just like a good sandwich from time to time. As you know, these daily quizzes are 20% of your grade. Uh, when you're done, drop it on my desk and leave the room. Silently. I'm looking at you, Ryan. Tom Hopkins returned to his chair at the front of the room. It was a long walk, longer than he would have liked. He had felt something physical happen with the last quiz he handed out to the quiet girl in the back row with the blonde dye job and slightly foreign name. German, was it? Kafka? He'd have to spend some time with the seating chart again. But it wasn't Kafka that was the problem. She was fine. It was that he was done. The last quiz of the day, the last paper. He had provided everything that his salary required of him. Shaken something something shiny in front of the students to keep them interested in names like Sartre and Kant. Given out something to grade. Nothing to do now but pile everything into his backpack. Walk out to the Black Festiva in the end row, row and drive home to nothing. Even now, he could feel that big empty out there, someplace, waiting for him. All that nothing in his apartment. All the dead. Indeed, the last quiz handed to Kafka was like a cascading wave wiping away the structure of the day he had built up, the smiles to the kids, the notes in the grade book, the teacher's edition he'd read fifty times. He was good at being this Tom. This Tom was a favorite sweater he'd been slipping into for years now, warm and inviting. He knew every stitch and every hole. The Tom that lived at home now was just nothing and he could feel that nothing spreading through him like an infection every day, stealing from him the quiet moments he used to cherish, stealing from him the will, stealing... Tom closed his eyes and took a deep breath. He'd had enough of his own head, even for ten minutes, and felt the tethers to his mind snap and let go. The din of those voices in his own head was suddenly silent as he floated out of his own bo body and into the classroom to lay against the ceiling, looking downward. He was above the kids, somewhere in the middle of the room. He looked back at himself, arms crossed at the teacher's desk, his face looking empty. From his vantage point on the ceiling, he saw now that he needed a haircut, and he was off one button or so in the row on that shirt. Distantly, he could hear the chorus of mumbles that were the students' thoughts. Tom knew it was just one of those weird phenomena that when people wrote, their thoughts were gener generally occupied by speaking the sentence they were trying to scribble on the page, and he had the minimum chance of accidentally picking up something personal. He wasn't trying to pry. He just wanted to be here on the ceiling, away from himself. But sooner or later, his curiosity got the best of him. Centering on one mind became a matter of descending from the heights of the room to just somewhere above each student, as though he were reading over their shoulders. What Sartre would call acting in bad faith. If you believe that, I don't fucking know. Who cares? The Warriors played last night. Like, I'm going to read this crap the night before the Warriors are playing? What's Beth writing? Man, she is falling out of that. Bryce! snapped Tom from the front of the room. Eyes on your own paper. 
How do you do that? Mr. Hopkins is a freak. Object in the universe at the mercy of its circumstances. Sartre was wrong. Jesus says that object in the universe, if my brother is dead, then we are truly lost. Tom's eyes snapped open. All right. Yeah, that's scene two. Hopefully, if I can crank out a scene in a day, uh, this will be fun. But I've talked about how, so this is sort of Romeo and Juliet with the uh, gender swapped. And, um, you know, and there's uh, obviously a heavy Buffy influence in this. I was, uh, Earshot uses uh, the trope from... Um, I love the the I, I I put Tin Man the Next Generation episode in my earshot review. There's a character in Tin Man who can't turn off the thoughts of the crew, and I always thought that was kind of interesting and fun to play around with. And you know the uh, the supernatural sneaking into the natural or sneaking into the world, I think, is very interesting and fun, assuming he's actually doing what he thinks he's doing. Anyway, that's the uh, that was today's rough. Uh, let's switch over now. Um, this week we have the Patreon Hangout on Saturday. Uh, the stream will start at 4.30 p.m. We'll be discussing the Yoko Factor and Primeval. Uh, I said I was going to put that one up for a vote. I didn't. Um, but I think what I'm going to do is the Yoko Factor and Primeval, then we're going to do two episodes of Angel, and then we'll do two weekends in a row where we do uh, the finale of each, each weekend. Um, yeah, and then probably take a month uh, after that before the whole the group goes into uh, Buffy Season 5, Angel Season 2. The group is going to pass me, and where I am on the channel um, should be an interesting thing. Um... That's this Saturday, then I'm going to take two days off, uh, and we'll be back with you guys for the next podcast on Tuesday, and I'm hoping to have guys, will be guys done by the end of that weekend, uh, don't try and track my math there. Okay, before I get into the fan fiction, I just want to let you know I'm at Ian Nitrum on Twitter, and youtube.com slash passionofthenerd. If you'd like to support the channel and keep me flush with Viking terror and post-apocalyptic survivor games, you can do so at patreon.com slash passionofthenerd. With the $5 and up club, you can join me in the hangout this weekend to talk about the Yoko Factor and Primeval. Or you can help out by grabbing yourself something at passionofthenerd.com slash store. And last but not least, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you may not realize it, but you can support me for free by using your monthly subscription at Amazon Prime, or uh, excuse me, at twitch.tv slash the passion of the nerd. However, I don't do much streaming, so if um, you're someone who uses Twitter and follows other, um, if you're someone who uses Twitch, got my wires crossed there, and follows other Twitch types, uh, please use your subscription on them. That's what it's actually for. Okay. Let's do some fanfic. We're here for Here is Gone. Uh, chapter number 21. All right. Passions was on when Dawn knocked on Giles's door. Spike recognized her scent before he even answered, and gave the teen a smile as he swung the door open. Hello, Bit. 
hang on a second. Did we read this last week? <laughs> uh, we did indeed. Chapter 22. I forgot I did two chapters last week. Apologies. Apologies. I'm sure some of you were shouting at uh, into your headphones trying to tell me chapter 22. It's chapter 22. Um, and I still owe you a compilation video. Uh, 11 through 22 probably will do now. All right. Once more with feeling. Spike was at the bronze when Xander bumped into him just as he had before. And from there, the timeline was pretty much the same. He pushed Xander's buttons by stealing peanuts, and eventually he and Xander struck up a game of pool. He listened to Xander bemoan his situation with Anya and Willow, knowing full well that Olaf would be coming in any minute. Still, he tried to pretend that he was paying attention, and made appropriate comments where necessary. The biggest difference, of course, was that he wasn't carrying the guilt of telling Buffy about Riley's bad habit. In this timeline, Giles had broken the news to the Slayer, and he had not had to bear the brunt of Buffy's ire. This, in and of itself, was a relief. He hated having Buffy angry at him, because an angry Slayer was a violent Slayer, much more apt to break his nose than listen to him. In this timeline, he might have more of a chance of actually talking to her. It would also be the first time since the beating that he would see her, and he knew that she was carrying at least some guilt and remorse over her behavior. They get in these fights, and then they're both looking at me like I'm a referee. Also, sometimes I'll say something about Anya, and Willow will get this look. This, what the hell do you see in her look, Xander was saying as they played pool. Spike nodded sympathetically. I know that look. A lot of people never really got Drew, you know. Well, she was insane, he commented offhandedly, ignoring Spike's irritated glance. And then it's like I, I get all torn, because Willow's my best friend, and I really value her opinion. But Anya's my girlfriend, you know. Nothing like split loyalties. I know all about that, Spike said with a sigh. This caught Xander's attention. What do you mean? Spike shrugged. The, the whole Akathla thing with Angelus and Drew. Odom as my family. Didn't want turn against Drew, but they were going to destroy the world, you know. I had to do something. Truce with Slayer seemed like the right thing to do. How's I don't know Drew would never forgive me. Buffy told me how you helped her. Even if you were only doing it for selfish reasons, I don't know if she could have beaten them both. If you hadn't taken care of Drusilla, you really helped. Spike was taken aback. Harris, are you thanking me? Xander made uh, another shot. Don't ever tell anyone, or you are so dust. Sm Spike smirked, feeling something bloom in his chest. My lips are sealed forever, whelp. Just then he was bumped from behind, and he knew immediately who it was. Showtime. Hey, watch it, mate, he groused, turning to see the troll. Second, do, uh, do whatever you like. Ale, the troll yelled happily, grabbing a keg from a hand tr truck. Yes, fragrant ale. I've been trapped for many centuries, and along with my taste of freedom, I would appreciate the taste of a fine grain-based beverage. He tucked his hammer into its holder, raised the keg with one hand, and bit into it, draining it while Spike and Xander watched. So, um, I think I should run and get Buffy, Xander whispered. Spike shrugged as Olaf threw the empty keg to the ground. Barmaid, fetch me a stronger ale and some succulent babies to eat, the troll ordered. I'm gonna go get Buffy, Xander said, then turned to Spike. Or you could fight him. Spike sized up the troll. Yeah, I could do that if I had a death wish. 
Xander moved ahead for the exit, but before he could take a single step, the troll noticed them. You there! Do you know where there are babies? He asked. Spike decided that he liked teasing Xander and turned on him as he had before, a mischievous glint in his eye. What do you think? Hospital, maybe? The comment worked, and Xander bristled. What? Shut up! Spike smiled to himself. Gotta get my kicks in somehow. Um, listen, Xander was saying to the troll. I find myself very hungry, and when I'm hungry, I get short of patience. Hey, we can take care of hungry. How about you just sit down uh, on one of the sturdier chairs, and we can talk calmly and have some food. Sorry, can it be babies? Information about that. Apparently Google thought that I was talking to her. Sorry about that. Can it be babies? Cancel. <laughs> Can it be babies? The troll asked, hopefully. Well, not so much, but maybe roast pigs and stags and much hearty grog. They have this onion thing, Spike offered helpfully. You cannot appease me. Do not try, the troll yelled, and then turned to the bar and grabbed another keg. More ale! Spike and Xander backed away from the distracted troll and ran into Willow and Anya, who had just entered. Willow was carrying a book. Your work, Red, Spike said innocently. While the young witch was tongue-tied, Anya noticed Xander. Xander, you shouldn't be here. There's a troll, she exclaimed. Big guy, Hammer, think I noticed him. I wish Buffy was here, Willow bemoaned as the troll drank another keg. Just then, Buffy and Tara entered and came running over. I'm here, said Buffy, restless. I wish for a million dollars, Willow said, surprised at Buffy's timely appearance. Then Xander saw the look. Just checking. Tara immediately hugged Willow. I'm so glad you're okay. What's going on? Buffy demanded. Where'd he come from? Knowing she hadn't seen him yet, he stepped forward tentatively, face slightly down as to not display the bruises too much. Hello, Buffy, he said carefully. She saw him and her jaw dropped, then her face filled with shame, and she looked away. Spike? I, I was here... When you, he showed up, easily ticked off, likes beer. Could put something in a keg, maybe, knock him out, he suggested. Shocked that he was trying to be helpful, she raised her eyes to stare at him. Uh, that's, that seems like a good idea, she stammered. Yeah. He looked at her, his vision condensing until she was the only thing that existed. Her Joyce is doing well, Niblet told me, he said suddenly, not wanting to lose her attention. A smile cracked her face, and she beamed. Yeah, she's doing great. We're really happy. He smiled back. I'm glad. She's a great woman, your mom. Buffy looked away. Yeah, she is. You look good, too. B better. She looked back up, and he saw the thin line of tears in her eyes. Yeah, well, I, I gotta, you know. She pointed a thumb at Olaf. Troll. He nodded and leaned close. Get his hammer. All his powers in his hammer. Buffy's eyes opened wide. Oh! He looked around at the people who seemed oblivious to the danger they were in. You want to try and clear the place out. Less chance of someone getting hurt. That, that would be very helpful, she stammered, still shocked. He nodded, forming a plan in his head. Listen, trolls are testy buggers. He gave a nod towards Willow, who was flipping through her spellbook. If Red's fixing to do some mojo, best take it outside. He gets pissed off and starts swinging that hammer. He could bring the whole place down. 
Buffy's gaze followed his to all the people in the club, and she got the I'm the Slayer and this is my job look on her face. Spike smiled because he loved to see her work. She was glorious to him. Right, good idea. You work on clearing these people out of here, I'll get big and drinky outside. Given his marching orders, he left Buffy to deal with Olaf and set on emptying the club. The first thing he did was pull the fire alarm, but amazingly, that only cleared a third of the crowd. This was, after all, Sunnydale. So he jumped onto the stage, unplugged the sound system, and grabbed a wireless mic that was still turned on. Oi! People, this is not a drill! Clear out now, he ordered. They stared stupidly at him. What are you, are you, all of you seriously stoned? There's a bloody alarm going off. Find the nearest exit and bugger off. They still stared, not comprehending at all. Spike raised his eyes to the ceiling, counted to ten, then gave up. Oh, bugger it. He shifted into game face and roared, get out. That did it. The residents of Sunny, Sunnydale might be too daft to pay any attention to a fire alarm, but give them a bloodthirsty killer, and they reacted. Screams echoed off the club walls, and the crowd made a mass stampede for the exits. The scent of fear gave him a head rush, and he grinned, still in demon face. Yeah, that's it, you blighters. I'm the big bad. Run, you sods. Get out of here. He gave a few more growls for good measure as the last of the patrons ran squealing out, then took stock of his work. The place was empty. Buffy and the Scoobies were gone, so was the troll, and the club was intact. He grinned, realizing he had averted disaster that had closed down the club, raised the prices, and axed the blooming onion. Not bad for a day's work. Still in game face, he sauntered up to the deserted bar, walked behind it, and perused the selection of liquor. He knew that his job was done for the day. Buffy and Red would send Olaf packing off to Troll's Paradise and get the hammer in trade. Xander would get beat up, but... At least it wasn't him for once, and the whelp wouldn't be too badly damaged. All would end well, and for his part in the whole thing, he deserved a beer. Ah, Pete's Wicked Ale. Didn't know they had this. Wankers would keep it hidden. He snagged a bottle, opened it with his teeth, and took a dip, deep swig, pulling it back. He shook off his demon. Nothing like a fang to get in the way of a good beer. He was just finishing his third when Giles came staggering in, holding what was left of a statue. Seeing the look on the watcher's face, he pulled another beer from behind the bar and slammed it on the counter. Giles came over and sat on a stool. Back early, Roops. You you didn't tell me it was quite that bad, Giles said, stunned even as he reached for the beer. Spike shrugged. Tried to warn you. But hey, look, I saved the bloom and onion. Giles gave a disinterested glance at the empty club. Well, yes, bully for you. He took a swig of the beer Spike had given him and shook his head. God, this is hard. Why do you think I spent most of my time drunk, Roops? Do either that or go stark raving mad? Yes, well, I would argue that it might be too late for that, the Watcher commented. Spike shrugged and raised his bottle. So Buffy beats the troll? Spike nodded. Yep, with Red's help. They get the hammer, Olaf gets shipped off to Troll's Paradise, and all is well in Sunnyhell for another week. Giles was still dazed. How very... <sighs> reassuring. Spike looked away and took another drink. So we can hope for, Watcher. So meet and greet with the Council of Wankers, any good? They are sending a team here to evaluate the situation. Told you they would. Yes. 
However, knowing that and reconciling it are two entirely different things. How do you think I feel? The words seemed to shake Giles out of his stupor, and he cocked his head. Yes, I do wonder sometimes. Giles reached into his pocket and pulled out a handful of fine sand, and then threw it on Spike, shouting, Illuminati! What the- Oi, Rupert! What'd you do that for? Spike yelled, brushing off the sand angrily. Oh, and you even got it in my beer, you wanker. He looked over at Giles, who was staring at him dumbfounded. What? he demanded. You have a soul, came the monotone answer. Well, duh, I told you I had a soul. Yes, but I didn't believe you. I was convinced you had found a way to lie un even under the truth spell, because if what you told me is true, then... He trailed off. Sykes, Spike sighed, understanding. Yeah, I know. But believe me, Watcher, I wish I was lying. Cosmic joke this is. I've always suspected that the powers that be have a sick sense of humor. Now I have proof, Giles said woodenly. The words stung more than they should have, and he couldn't help feeling hurt. Giles was his only confidant in this mess, the only one who shared the heavy burden with him, and now it had been revealed that the Watcher hadn't believed him all along. It cut him, bringing all his feelings of betrayal and inadequacy to the forefront. Well, yeah. Unlikely hero here, making the world safe for puppies, Christmas and bloomin' onions. But all I'm good for. If I hadn't colossally screwed up when I had the chance, none of it would have happened. Giles looked apologetic. I didn't mean it that way, Spike. You're doing the best that you can. Yeah, but it's not good enough, he replied, then shrugged. It never will be. Look, I have a hankering to drown my sorrows in solitude. I'm pretty much healed up now, and I thank you for your hospitality, but I'm going to go back to my crypt. You look me up when you want to do another planning session over a few bottles of booze, and I'll be game. In the meantime, I'll go back to my cave, where all of us nasties belong. He began walking towards the exit. Giles tried to stop him. Spike, I can it, Rupert. Can't handle it net right now. He looked back at the man who, had, who was looking broken and exhausted, and knew Giles looked like he felt inside. You do what you gotta do, and I'll do what I gotta do, and we'll leave it at that. He turned away and stalked out. More beers behind the bar, Watcher. Help yourself, he called over his shoulder as he left. He did not look back. All right. Probably a good spot to end it. Uh, I know with uh, my chat with Lonnie, we have a bit of a long one today. So I hope you join us for um, the discussion on Saturday. And I hope I have something for you sometime this week. Uh, follow on Twitter if you want to keep abreast of that. Uh, until then, I mean, you know the drill. Please take care of yourself. Um, try and find some time to take a breath. And uh, I'll see you in a week.